February 12, 2009. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Fred Dick, Senior Lecturer in Cognitive Neuroscience at Birkbeck College, University of London, where he works on language and auditory mapping and processing. Thanks for being here, Fred. My pleasure. Around the room, we have Nicole Witcha. Hi. Charlie Wilson. Hi. Fidel Santamaria. Hello. Rama Ratna. Hello, someone. Todd Troyer. Good afternoon. And me, I'm your host, Selma Karashi. First off, I just learned that you seem to be fairly committed to a career in music prior to your shift to cognitive neuroscience, and um, it's always great to start off with a personal journey, so could you tell us yours? Uh, so I started out uh, studying violin and piano, and and uh, spent most of my 20s uh, studying violin performance in various, uh, various places in the States and in uh, Germany and France. And around about 25, I uh, decided to move back to the States and move into neuroscience. Uh, but I still, but a lot of the ideas that I was, I would come up with uh, as a musician really inform my, my research now. How do we learn, learn to understand different sounds? Uh, <clears throat> how are different kinds of sound production uh, instantiated in the brain? Uh, how are they shared? How do they differ? Um, what, how does, uh, learning a sound uh, interact with when, when you start to learn it. Uh, so is it really true that, that starting to learn a language or instrument early is crucial for really uh, mastering that skill? Uh, so uh, these are things that, I, that I've continued to work on in science as well as in, in music. So I just want to start with a really general question that's always kind of bugged me. There seems to be a lot of redundancy in how language maps itself um, onto brain areas. Practically every cortical region has shown recruitment in language studies, depending on um, tasks of various sorts. So there doesn't appear to be a language organ in the brain, in the phrenological sense, right? No, I often say the, langu- <coughs> the language organ is the brain. Yeah. <laughs> so what then are the most useful approaches for studying language? I mean, how does it inform your work? And, um, you know, what's your approach? Is it just this opportunistic thing that'll colonize any substrate it encounters? Or how, do, how does that work? And what do you do about that in your studies of the brain? Well, that's a great question. So uh, one, of, <clears throat> one of my approaches is, in fact, to think of language as being parasitic on on a primate brain that is really good at acting in the world, acting on sounds, acting on on input, and and uh, planning its uh, way through a very uh, uh, complicated auditory space. And uh, one of the the uh, ways that I think about the way that language is parasitic on the brain is that there there are some regions that are are kind of um, uh, fertile ground. For language and and some that are perhaps less suited, but will do if you're not if you're missing out those those uh, regions. So as an example of that, some of the work that I did uh, when I was a grad student at San Diego uh, with Liz Bates was look at at language development in children who had perinatal uh, focal lesions and who were in fact missing entire regions of language. Where uh, if you saw the same types of damage as an adult they would have very serious language deficits. But in these children, they were absolutely unremarkable in their language development. So I like the word parasitic. Because this is a big debate, right, whether how special language is and um, whether it's completely different and segregated and, and so forth. And it seems to be um, 
I mean, I don't know how. I guess I guess the question is how how is that debate going, and is it is it changing at all in terms of the the different sides or some compromise perspective? Because parasitic is nice because it can be different, but yet it's affected by the subs uh, the substrate that it needs to to work. So where are you standing on that, and how do you see that debate? Well, certainly language is special, and we are the only species that learns language. But uh, as Lizbase used to say, we're also the only species that plays professional hockey and conducts international finance, sometimes now to our uh, our, our sadness and detriment. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I think, uh, in terms of movement of field, I think uh, one of the things that that uh, Vernon Mountcastle, of all people, said was that that uh, the perhaps the the primary contribution of human imaging is that it has absolutely disproven phrenology, particularly with higher um, higher cognition, and that you don't see a one to one mapping of of uh, language functions to brain regions. Um, and I think as people have, have started to study uh, different species in depth and uh, also looked at, at uh, different, more complex skills in depth, they see that, that are, there are, in fact, uh, a lot of parallels to, to language processing and certainly many shared precursors. Uh, and that's certainly part of my work. Rama. Awesome. Um, but let me go back a little early earlier in the developmental stage, so Noam Chomsky, for example, posited that uh, language is innate, it's an instinct. Of course, there are many camps that disagree with Bates, I believe is one of them. Um, but is there, so one, one way to look at the utility of imaging, and to answer such a question is, could we look at early developmental stages of language in infants, for example, and actually determine if they actually process speech sounds in a different, in a different way? Is that so? Uh, well, certainly, that's an interesting question because it also it also seems to uh, depend on the eye of the beholder. So, some fMRI studies of of infants listening to speech suggest that there is some, for instance, uh, left lateralized uh, activation in infants listening to speech that is somewhat similar to what you see in adults. And, uh, however. If you look at at uh, work by Debbie Mills and colleagues, even just uh, to to processing of words or even uh, sublexical items like phonemes, uh, you see a really prolonged developmental trajectory of just of of early components, um, uh, early electrophysiological excuse me, early electrophysiological components um, related to words and word meaning. Uh, that really it takes a long time to develop. So I think the from my perspective, the the uh, idea that that language mechanisms are innate is is contraindicated by by this evidence. But Nicole might have more to say on that. Actually, that's pretty. I mean, you kind of summed it up. There's also the work from Pat Cool showing with specifically related to your work with the categorical perception um, specific to a language that infant where infants. Um, are, 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 of course, uh, as, you, as you know, can, are born into any language and can perceive the different uh, phonemes of any language that they're born into, and then narrow into the phonemes, but through experience with that with that language, that particular language. And they even showed this and that this is possible in chinchillas, another species. So, um, with specifically with the speech sounds, it doesn't seem like this is innate to language, but it's definitely something that can. They can, it's very easy to learn. 
Fidel. Thank you. So I really don't know about anything about this field, but aren't you talking about phonemes and uh, understanding? Because Wernicke's area is the understanding of language. I mean, there, the lesions show that people can pronounce and, and understand. Um, for example, if you tell a person with a Wernicke's lesion, if I remember correctly, or Broca's lesion, you can tell them to pick up the glasses that are on the table, and they'll do it. But if you ask them what to, to pronounce the word, to say, what are these... If you grab the glass and, and show them to them and say, what are, what, what are these? And they, they cannot vocalize uh, the word. Right? So, I mean, the phone... I, I, I think that's, 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 that's a, that would be a brocus of basic. Yes. Brocus. Uh, so, but the, the actual mapping, so there so they're, they're do tend to be productive aphasia. So, so ones where people uh, are unable to, to come up with or produce, produce words on demand. Uh, and then a ver classic Wernicke's aphasia is a deficit in comprehension um, that that is generally uh, characterized by sort of fluent but but somewhat peculiar so paragrammatic paragrammatic speech, uh, but with um, severe uh, problems in in comprehension. What's interesting is that the the mapping between damage to Wernicke's area or Broca's area and these behavioral deficits is quite shaky. Um, so, for instance, the patient that I showed in my talk today had a very large legion, which encompassed all of classical Wernicke's area, uh, much of uh, the adjacent territory. And certainly when he, he started out, um, he had uh, what's called a global aphasia, which is an, an ability to understand or produce language. And in fact, over years, this resolved, and it does, as it does in many cases, albeit not to such a great degree, into a very mild anomia. So it's clear that in some ways this region is not, not crucial um, and, and uh, not the only region in town that's, that is responsible for, for uh, doing these computations. So in, so in that patient, did, <clears throat> did the recovery of perception precede production or one way or the other? I mean... Unfortunately, on this particular patient, uh, we don't have uh, his his uh, detailed uh, history of, of um, how comprehension and production followed. We only saw him at, after he had done all of his training. Well, what about asking him? I mean, in terms of rough, did it seem like uh, in terms of progression? Uh, uh, comprehension almost always recovers before production. Um, so uh, a fluent and non-fluent aphasia really very cleanly separable in the sense that you can have one with no impact on the, you know, the abilities relating to the other? Uh, there, I think there are some patients that may show that for short periods of time. Generally, they're not so cleanly, certainly not they so cleanly. One one two. Absolutely. So I want to get back to this idea of your approach to studying um, language. And so you'd said you, earlier that there are certain parts of the cortex that are predisposed to being colonized by language. And it seems to me that we don't know that much about those areas. And maybe this idea of the day job, figuring out the day job of that area of cortex is the most important thing right now to be doing. I mean, I, I got the sense from looking at your work that that's your approach. Is that, would that be correct? And can you elaborate on yeah, that? Yes. So, so, so uh, much of my research now is looking at, at 
exactly what are what might be the reasons that that language is so so uh, good at colonizing these regions. Um, so this is particularly true in the auditory system, which is is uh, kind of a, a mystery zone mm-hmm. um, in terms of understanding its its, uh, its kind of uh, organizational framework, um, particularly relative to the, the visual system. Right. Um, so so you're looking now specifically. Um, I guess some of your most recent stuff is looking at how auditory experience drives cortical plasticity. And since this is fairly new stuff, do you want to maybe talk a little bit about the experiments and maybe some of your key findings for our listeners? Sure. So uh, uh, several of our recent uh, fMRI experiments have been looking at at, um, how uh, particular brain regions, especially in the posterior superior temporal uh, gyrus and sulcus, uh, tend to respond to to aspects of uh, the auditory signal, particularly speech signals and meaningful speech. And uh, one of the things that you have to do as a uh, a person who is understanding a speech stream, for instance, my speech stream, is decompose the speech stream into to a basic uh, uh, phonetic elements. So, for instance, when I say say. Um, there are different phonemes that's ah uh, and and a. So there's no semantic content here. Exactly, okay. um, and you have to um, uh, decompose this very this um, remarkably uh, constant speech stream into different is sort of the smallest units of uh, meaningful sound, and in order to do this, uh, you have to uh, do some sort of. Uh, <clears throat> Respacing and parcellation of of the speech stream uh, in order to categorize different sounds that and on the surface, if you look at, for instance, a, a spectrogram, which is a, a visual representation of the sound, look extremely different. So, as a concrete example of how hard this is, uh, take a um, your experience with dialing into an airline and uh, the airline asking you with its automated speech recognition system. What city would you like to depart from? And I say London, and it says Ontario. Right. And even though this is a remarkably powerful computer, uh, the ability to generalize from my uh, pronunciation of London to the the average pronunciation of London is extremely difficult. Uh, and that's because the mapping between a particular set of sounds and a phoneme l. Is very dependent on a speaker. It's very dependent on the context in which that that uh, phoneme is is uh, placed. It's and uh, also dependent on the difference the gender of the, the speaker. So there are brain regions and sets of brain regions that are pre- seem to be particularly interested in this process. And one of these is the posterior, the um, posterior part, superior temporal sulcus, um, that has been shown where activation has been shown to be modulated uh, by how well people are able to perceive differences in phonemes and also how well they're able to understand the meaning of a particular um, of a particular utterance. Fidel? Um, I have a question. So do you really need to de- decompose the sound stream into all these mini changes in, in uh, frequency and, and uh, amplitude? Uh, I mean... Th- I believe that to make an analogy with how birds fly, right, or how an eagle catches salmon, right, 
they don't. It seems that they don't care about. They don't have to decompose at every single millisecond the image that is coming towards them, right? They they do this figure to background segmentation, and then the only thing that they have to do is statistically see something that go- doesn't match, right? That something that goes in the opposite direction of your visual flow. So you you wouldn't need to do this very uh, complicated computation that you're proposing, right? I mean, something analogous could be happening in the sound, and you don't have to go into the phoneme and then doing the spectrogram and then analyzing the little nuances of the spectrogram to say, oh, yeah, it's a, this is the phoneme. But Fidel, you got to find the the words in the stream. So if I, uh, you know, if I say Amona, uh, do you know what I mean? No, exactly. I'm going to. Uh-huh. Though, you understand that. But it, that, that is the point, because that is contextual, right? After a while, you get used to it, and then you get that you're going to pronounce that word, and the next word is going to be pronounced similarly. Well, you right? finally so figure that out that I'm on it means I'm going to, because you start to view I'm on it as just one word, the same as I do. But it's really not just one word. So that's actually something that that uh, that I've been interested in, and I think also uh, Todd has been interested in the, the role of context and the role of, of predicting upcoming auditory information, and and uh, knowing that you you can winnow the number of possibilities of what that word might be to a, to a very small number of of what you think of as auditory or, or uh, phonemic context uh, candidates. Um, based on what what came up before, but there still has to be some sort of of uh, decomposition of the auditory signal, or um, what just happened uh, with you and Charlie will happen all the time. It happens every day. <laughs> <laughs> Nicole, uh, so kind of related to that, and, and thinking of, of Todd's work with uh, with songbirds and, and, and human speech. Um, one of the things that struck me in listening to more recently the, the talks on birdsong was that there's much less variability in the sound signal that animal, other animals have to process in their calls. or uh, Not just that they're species-specific and they have a, s- a small number of things that they produce, but the actual variability in the same song from one bird to the next or from one time to the next is much less variable than what the human brain has to deal with. And, and that's kind of interesting to me that, that it seems, I mean, what do you think about the human brain is really a much higher level statistical processor than, than lower species seem to be. Hey. But, but, haven't you, <laughs> but related to that, haven't you shown that environmental uh, sounds, which are more stereotyped, actually show really, really similar activation to language? Yes. Yeah, so, so if you compare, uh, for instance, the comprehension of environmental sounds, so the sound of, of me tapping on the table, uh, which we're not supposed to be doing, <laughs> uh, or uh, laughter, the sound of a bird uh, cawing, uh, to activation for speech, they do look very similar. Um, although there are some some key differences, in for, for instance, in this in the left superior temporal sulcus, um, but uh, there are they are actually very quite variable. So each exemplar is quite different, but they do they tend to be much more clumpy in in terms of the, the so the the being able to differentiate between a knock on the table versus bird call is infinitely easier from a, a sort of basic uh, acoustical decomposition than, for instance, de- uh, dif- 
differentiating between um, dog and bog. But there, will you argue that it is the same substrate? Are, they, are you recruiting the same parts of the brain to uh, identify the sound of water or wind, right? That, uh, from what you said, it, I mean, we can, right? And the sound of water or wind are it's not the same every time, right? Are we using the same substrate? Well, so some of my experiments have suggested that yes, um, that it is very much uh, a similar, very large network of, of, of regions. But the, the, the mm -hmm. question that is driving much of my current research is, what are these guys actually doing together? How are they breaking that signal down? Let's back up a bit here, because the, the, the ways, I mean, we process lots of sounds, but they're not necessarily speech sounds. They have nothing to do with language at all. So I would argue that at least up to the level of the primary and secondary auditory cortical areas, that perhaps there is not much difference in the way these sounds are processed. That you, what you, the, the differences are likely to manifest themselves in higher order association areas rather than in the early auditory pathway. And in that sense, I would, uh, as far as speech is concerned, in that sense, I would, I would classify all areas up to the auditory cortex as sort of early in that sense. Although attention right? affects uh, yes, primary areas, right? Attention will affect uh, V1. <laughs> And it will affect the uh, primary auditory no, areas as well, right? Certainly it can, uh, it can, it'll affect it to the extent that it allows you to attend to select sounds and ignore other sounds. Granted. But uh, are there actual differences between, say, nonsense syllables, uh, even right. real speech, and, say, sounds produced by birds? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm, I, I think the, the answer is not much. <laughs> Uh, at the early levels, uh, even at the so in terms of uh, the 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 cortical areas that are recruited, it is often the same cast of characters, mm -hmm. uh, and and some are recruited a bit more than others. Um, what is so? What is really quite striking uh, to come back to this superior temporal sulcus is that, for instance, when when you listen to quite complex sounds, so for instance, musical sounds much of that vast tract of cortex is really not firing very much, um, whereas it's really fired up by, by speech. Um, interestingly, it's also quite fired up by reverse speech. By reverse speech? Yes. So it's not necessarily it's extracting some sort of and magical linguistic meaning. Um, certainly it's, it's more interested in, in meaningful speech, but there is something about... about uh, the pattern of, of sounds um, itself that, that is, is recruiting those areas. So more fired up means using more oxygen or using more resources. It's, uh, yes. So it's, it's as, as we can very indirectly measure using fMRI on a, on a gross level. So I wonder what that, what it means, you know, to see the exact same part of the brain Processing two different signals, and in one case, it it needs more oxygen or, or glucose or something to do the one than the other. Isn't that odd? Because don't you think that the neurons are basically doing the same thing in the two situations? One might be harder than the other, but how does that get turned into greater demand for oxygen? So presumably, I mean, the, the logic that has, and I think that has actually panned out, not necessarily from spike counts, in, but from local field potentials, is that in fact, these small uh, subpopulations of neurons are actually firing more, and, and that that ensemble firing uh, recruits local blood flow.
So if the neurons are firing more, then that means that they have become a higher th throughput information channel, right? By some kind of simple information theoretical way of thinking about it. So maybe they've like, just sped up so that they can handle a higher bit rate. Uh, I mean, I'm just trying to think, mm -hmm. how, should, the, the, how should I think about that? The, the, um, the paper that I think, I'm thinking about is this Israeli group that showed to seven people or something like that, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Right? That and movie? Then, yes. Excellent. So, yeah. <laughs> Not the auditory part, I guess. So, uh, so they, they monitor the same visual areas, and the, um, they correlated the activity of those areas to the complexity of the scene, right? And uh, scenes in which there was the same amount of color or whatever, right, compared to the ones that there was a hand with a gun, right? The, the one with the hand and the gun, especially in close-up, close up, made the neurons fire. So it's another so example two, of the same thing, but I'm just as puzzled but by but this like They identify two <laughs> manipulations, so the attention goes to two manipulation. That's, uh, I mean, that's something that also arises from... So attention just translates into faster firing? I, I guess it's more uh, uh, attention into decomposing that signal. So that what's the good of firing pass? Pass? My question is, what's the good of firing pass? Or more neurons? Just like no, it's just recruitment. I don't think they, it's necessary to fire more. It's, the, it's recruiting more neurons, right? Or it could be reverberating, right? So it could be going back and forth different areas. And that, that'll be... I would argue that yeah. the, with attentional mechanisms comes actually more restricted or focused sort of activity. You would actually see probably a reduction in activity rather than an increase. Don't you think? It could just as easily be dreamed up that way as the other way. So <laughs> <laughs> <And> it is. <laughs> well, certainly it's an allocation of uh, Aisha, Aisha Saigon and uh, Marty Serena, who are colleagues, both at UCSD and... Uh, and uh, Birkbeck and UCL have shown that that um, that uh, an increase of attention to a particular part of the visual um, the visual field causes a massive upregulation of, of activation in all in many visual areas in that particular retinopic location. Um, so, how exactly that corresponds to to um, Firing patterns, I wouldn't want to speculate on. But, right. But my understanding is that, in fact, it you do see. We're happy to speculate on. Yes. <laughs> no, but, that's but certainly when you when you uh, when you stimulate a particular part of the visual field, as um, in V one, those fire those neurons start to fire lots, and they, when you move the stimulus away from that part of the visual field, they stop firing. So coming back a little bit to language, you know, this isn't just some signal that exists. Uh, out there that we have to listen to, right? I mean, the language can be evolved to excite the auditory cortex as much as auditory cortex can be specialized for listening to language. Yes. Right? So we may uh, no, do the right... Chomsky. I thought we'd already dismissed Chomsky. That's not a really a... a, a, a uh, it's independent of that, that no. argument. Well, I think, so Michael Lewicki uh, and Evan Smith have some very interesting work suggesting that, in fact, speech is sort of optimal signal for yes. the mammalian uh, auditory system. Yeah, Rama, well, they show you, yeah, they, the, the coding is different. I mean, there are the optimal filters for, for speech, are different, and they match what is presumably there. So, 
Yes, but um, but it does. But does that address his point? I mean, in that sense, I mean that. Well, well, sure. It could be that that you produce the speech that's optimized for the for the the auditory cortex filter. So you do the right rate of uh, you know onsets and and fricatives and vowels and vowel changes, all these kinds of things to get exactly the right time scale so that things are have a lot of onsets but not doing frequency analysis right. yeah. and you're doing all that stuff exactly so that you're recruiting all this diversity of of, of properties of you know tonic and phasic responses and that would be the optimal thing. I mean that's one. You know, you can you can do these with a communication system, a sensory motor communication system. You can always optimize either thing. You know, you can make the you can pose the argument in either way. Uh, it certainly makes much more sense from an evolutionary standpoint to have your language system evolve because it certainly do much much faster than for the brain to evolve to service a language system. But in some sense, language doesn't need speech. No. So. What are the results from, say, patients who are mute, who are unable to speak? So, so certainly gestures in sign language, right, that's, mm -hmm. I think there's a much more research on that. And uh, you do see a lot, depending on, on which study it is, there is quite a lot of overlap very generally between, between the um, regions that are recruited for comprehending and producing sign language as for... Uh, uh, for producing and comprehending spoken language, um, whether it that were this may be a level of resolution issue with fMRI, uh, but but certainly people who have have left hemisphere lesions in particular regions who are sign who are are signers um, tend to have tend to have um, sign aphasia, for instance. Is there any utility for animal models? So I think there are a lot of, there's probably no single animal model of language, but certainly there are many other animals that that uh, share different components of what we might think of as our language system, uh, all the way from, from specializations in the ear to uh, specializations in intercortical connections, uh, that are certainly shared with with uh, creative species and certainly change over evolution. Uh, so, uh, Ken Lutico and, and Hopkins, for instance, have done some very beautiful work looking at at, um, at specialization in in uh, what are probably the homologs of Broca's and Bernicke's area in great apes. Um, and certainly, birdsong is, a, I think, probably the most attractive possibility for uh, for um, looking at at uh, certainly. Uh, understanding of complex vocalizations, right. uh, and also and very much from the, the learning of complex vocalizations, and that you have you can actually observe learning as you observe learning with language in, in children. I mean, these things are coupled, right? So it's it's like the difficulty in taking auditory motor perspectives. You have an auditory or a sensory motor system for language and communication, but then you also have language that's on top of that, but language needs a substrate to communicate, right? So it has to be produced and it has to be perceived. And so taking out language out of its sensory motor or substrate is difficult to, to do that. So you have these interactions between the structure of the sensory motor substrate and the language part. And so you can have a good, say, say view a lot of the birdsong research as a good model for the sensory motor uh, substrate and communication. 
that uh, it certainly will have a lot of implications for language as we have our sensory motor substrate, but it's not language per se. So it's a model, I guess it's a model of what? And it's quite interesting about what, you know, what is it that you study when you study language? Um, because it's very hard to access it. So a lot of how the experiments are designed and what you're testing with language and what you assume about the structure of things comes into uh, you know, your, your experiments. So it, it's quite interesting to think about, well, what, what do you study when you study language and what, you know, what are you going to do? Right. So, so one thing that where birdsong, I think, is from my point of view, an attractive but also not not such a good model is the, the, what we've not talked about yet. Just uh, the language is for communicating, and humans use language to communicate very complex ideas, and uh, actually, may perhaps to think of new complex ideas, language is the best way to do that. Uh, and and certainly, um, uh, some species of birds are highly social animals and use birdsong to communicate social signals, but in terms of communicating some other kinds of information, I think that's much less clear, whereas some other animal communication systems, uh, so for instance, uh, perhaps um, in, in cetaceans and, and even in some insects, uh, and certainly in bats, um, may be a little bit easier to, uh, to get around the, the communication aspect. Let's strip the. I, I know we're getting a little far away, further away from your research area, but let's you haven't yet finished. I'm going through his <laughs> work, but go ahead. <laughs> well, let's let's strip communication away from language. Okay? Just look at language as you know a, a more abstract ability, as say symbolic processing, for example. Uh, I do believe there have been some models, for example, Kanzi's sort of Sun Savage Rambo's um, classic work. Uh, where, they sh where she shows that you know this animal is the chimp is capable of performing symbolic reasoning. We don't often remove the communication aspect out of it, and the communication involves those processes that Todd was talking about, like sensory motor processes. Take those away and look at language in a more abstract sort of symbolic reasoning sense. What do we have? I mean, are there other models that can actually satisfy it? Can, can that can be used to study this? We use language for symbol manipulation, symbol manipulation, even when we are not communicating with another person. Absolutely. But if we are sitting around thinking about our research project and we start manipulating the symbols that are part of it quietly to, the, to ourselves, right. we are using words most of the time. Right. Sometimes not. But right. uh, most of the time we use words to represent those right. ideas. Okay. So you'd like to think about language as a mechanism for manipulating symbols, even independently of it. Correct. Right. So it isn't completely abstract. It's, in fact, it's an everyday use of language. It's just a quiet use. It's a quiet use of language. So Charlie, as usual, put it much, much better than me. So that, that's but, exactly what I But I don't know if that's, that's, I mean, I will argue uh, against it, because what Charlie says, like, when you think you think about your, you saying things, or you think about concepts, I mean, and then maybe the it's like imagination, right? So you're thinking about playing golf, the regions of your brain that are in, engaged in learning how to play golf will get activated. The same thing will go. I will. I, I propose the same thing happens when you're thinking about thinking, right? And language. Uh, so the same regions that you use for speech will get activated in that. So probably in a different 
some, somewhat different, but very similar to, to the, the, the way you use them when we are doing this, communicating. I think, you should, I think we saw some results. Some of your research, I think, thought sort of in this direction, right? In that in quiet, in, in say, quiet speech, for example. So, so certainly, uh, so inner speech does tend inner to speech, activate oh, some, uh, a good chunk of the, of the speech network, although not all of it, and generally to a lesser, uh, lesser extent. So brain definitely is much more, so, and you can see this with, for instance, imagined execution of a movement versus real mm-hmm. execution, or uh, imagined reaching versus real reaching versus observation of reaching. There, there are shared networks, but definitely okay. it's like doing it is much more exciting. Um, <laughs> So would this work, for example, while doing mathematics, for example? So Nicole has actually done some comparisons of mathematical... Is that not right? Mathematical symbol manipulation versus linguistic symbol manipulation. Well, actually, it's math in whether when you're using language or when you're using the digit form. That's what I mean. And there is, in in the ERP research, it looks like there are some overlapping networks for doing okay. the same kinds of processes, whether you're using a linguistic form or you're lo- using an abstract number form. Um, they, they're overlapping, but not completely, so there's similar concepts. So you, obviously there's some aspects of the um, mathematical computation, or you know, simple arithmetic, it's not anything complicated, that are shared, but the form itself obviously has to be processed in some way differently because they are different forms and, and probably related to different networks. So, yeah. Is that... That's what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, um, Nicole, so what, what was it that we wanted to get right back now. to? <laughs> yeah, we wanted to get back to what we were discussing before you started. You're at the actual the work, the STS work that you've done on yeah. the so, speech uh, area. So, so uh, very briefly, what what we were interested in seeing whether we could whether we could simulate. Uh, um, the some aspects of language learning and of learning um, of learning different speech categories uh, with completely non-linguistic uh, with completely non-linguistic sounds. So, in a study that that I did with uh, my former postdoc Rob Leach uh, and Laurie Holt and Joe Deblin, we looked at brain changes that were related to learning novel sound categories. Uh, well, people uh, in the service of of a space invaders type game. So, we looked at at people who were listening to various sounds, and these sounds would tell you whether an alien uh, that you had to shoot or capture was coming from the left side of the screen or the right side of the screen. And the better that you were at using these sound categories, which were quite different, and and you had to use um, a variety of cues to understand which category it was. Um, the better you were at learning these categories, the better you were at shooting games. So there's real motivation, or at shooting the aliens. So there's a real uh, motivation for for uh, getting good at them. But we never told people that they were, should actually uh, pay attention to the sounds in order to be good at the game. And what we found was that that people who were very good at learning the game and thus learning these sounds, sound categories, um, when they were exposed to these sounds um, after training, they showed increased activation in exactly this same posterior STS region, so superior temporal sulcus region, as has been shown uh, to be recruited in other uh, speech-specific paradigms, so where people have to categorize one kind of of, uh, consonant-vowel combination versus another. Suggesting that something about this about this region in the posterior superior temporal sulcus is really good at divvying up classes of sounds and categorizing sounds 
on kind of higher dimensional grounds. But yet it's not the acoustical properties of the sound because a subsequent study, in a subsequent study, you've shown that this area can be devoted to music. Uh, so so, so uh, in some, to some extent, actually, we see that, the, so in the subsequent study that you talk about, uh, we looked at, at violinists and actors listening to violin music and dramatic speech. And these were all uh, uh, professionally trained uh, violinists and actors that they had had uh, up to 20, 30 years of professional intensive training where they would be practicing four to six hours a day uh, and performing all the time. And what we found was that, that when we looked at, what, at regions in the brain that are usually really active only when listening to speechy type things where uh, activity for other sounds is much less. It's still there, but these regions are really act- interested in speech. That some of these regions, so for instance, in the right superior temporal sulcus uh, and along the superior temporal gyrus um, in the left and the right, uh, as well as some, some motor regions uh, in, in the precentral gyrus, that... <clears throat> that the degree of activation was predicted by whether you actually use that, whether you produce that sound or, uh, or perceive that sound. So violinists listening to violin um, really showed a lot of activation in these regions, uh, whereas actresses didn't show very much uh, activation to this music at all. And in fact, the violinists showed as much or more activation to violin sound as to speech sound so in these, do, in these supposedly speech-selective regions. Do vi- do- do trained violinists break the violin music up into into chunks, into syllables or words or something? No. Like, like speech or what so, is it? Which is a really good question. So, in fact, this this region that is that is particularly good at doing these sort of fine level categorizations at this particular temporal uh, uh, window was not very active. Um, in well, the violinists were listening to violin. Uh, so there's there's a, a very quite a different um, uh, temporal dynamic in listening to to uh, in producing listening to violin music. So most of the action in in uh, string instruments is actually in these in these discrete changes in uh, either amplitude, but especially in pitch. So it would be pitch ramps in semitones, or in some string instruments you'll have uh, so vibrato is another thing. But they're happening. At a somewhat slower rate um, than, than, than uh, for instance, uh, the the kinds of formant changes that distinguish speed sounds. Huh. Uh, so I'm wondering, what is it? I imagine that you are thinking that the violinist knows the motor patterns required to make those sounds, and that a regular person doesn't know those, but probably a violinist also listens to violin music in a slightly different way and is picking out different components of the music, whereas somebody else maybe is hearing it as in a more continuous stream or something like that. Yeah, I know Absolutely. that from, I know that from going to concerts with Fred, he always, he can, t- I, I think anything's great, and Fred that well, he was a little bit off. Of <laughs> no, but the question would be to, 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 to compare a person that is just starting to train in violin to the people that you have and see if they yeah, highlight the area of the brain in a different way. So, so the actresses that we had actually were, were certainly familiar with violin music. Um, and uh, No, but you, you got people very well trained in some type of communication, right? I mean, either actors or uh, musicians, right? If you take somebody out of the tube 
in London and then just, just put them to play the, the violin a little bit. Uh, you give them the classes for two weeks and see what happens. So in our pilot experiments, we did have people like that and they pretty much just looked like Joe Blow. They looked like the actors. Or what about people who have a good technical understanding of music but don't necessarily play it? So that's actually going to be the, the topic of some of our, our follow-up experiments. Rama and Todd yeah. looked like they had some... No, no, I, I was just going to follow up on Charlie's question here and sort of refine it a little bit and ask, is that ability that, that comes with having good musical ability because of better frequency discrimination ability or is it better temporal processing that you're able to much more quickly resolve the fluctuations in notes uh, or whatever it is uh, you know, compared to someone who's not being trained. I think that's a really good question. And I, to my knowledge, there is not very much uh, known about that. Uh, often uh, music perception, especially in fMRI, tends to sort of group over right. classes right. of instruments. So they'll have pianists and violinists in the same group. And obviously there are really different uh, uh, demands on those, on those two instruments. So that's, I think, certainly uh, you would imagine that pitch perception would be much more finely tuned in, in a string instrumentalist in that, that there are no frets. <laughs> um, and you also you have, to, you have to tune very carefully between instruments in order to get maximum resonance uh, than in something like a pianist. And anecdotally, I think that's true, but, but uh, I'm not an expert on, on um, music perception per se. Well, so it seems uh, like that's where I, I, I had a potential uh, beef with what you said about the violinist following this much slower changes uh, I mean, you know, as as, a, as an expert, you, you don't care much about the melody necessarily, right? You're 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 listening to how they're playing it. So there's actually very fine scale things about um, the way you play the notes in terms of the onsets and stuff that that may be at the same similar temporal scale than changes uh, and you know the changes of of speech um, because it's like, I mean, presumably the actors know that you know the lines, right? It's the way that you're performing things. So you're actually listening at a much different scale than just finding out what the words that you're saying or the melody. Right? Yeah. So absolutely. I think still the, the, so in terms of, of things that, that would be particularly interesting for, for a violinist, there is, there is the quality of timbre, um, the speed and intensity of vibrato, which is still, relatively slow and we're talking kind of eight hertz here uh eight to ten hertz at that end um and the the uh regularity of of uh rhythmic transitions that's still happening i mean even if you're subdividing that that is but how know, closer clean, to but how clean don't you, it doesn't matter a lot how clean the transitions between notes are absolutely and so certainly that's at a at, that would be at a higher uh temporal resolution um so point taken. Yeah. Um, but there is, I think, that in terms of, um, of kind of extracting the base, the sort of base information. Um, yeah, but that's what the experts may not yes, that's, be, be doing. They may be doing something different than that. They may, that might true. be easy for them. I wonder if there's any um, studies done with... Uh, so when, when you have a segment of music or a segment of speech where you're missing, you're missing a piece of information... We usually fill it in, right? And there's studies showing that you fill in you fill in the uh, speech segment that you, by context, and you do the same thing for musical segments. Um, I'm wondering if uh, what you're talking about, like more expert violinists, might actually treat differently that that absence of information um, if they're really paying attention to it at that level. 
um, I'm trying to so say there is, um, again, someone anecdotally that somewhat similar to that. Uh, if, if musicians asked, are asked to listen to and dis- discriminate, uh, uh, errors in four part harmony, for instance, if you're listening to your choir, um, that's extremely difficult, uh, especially for listening to inner voices for a non-trained person or even for, uh, an instrumentalist who only deals with, with, um, you know, uh, one tone at a time, like, um, most string instruments. Um, but the more experienced you are, and for instance, uh, pianists are much better at this, uh, those, those absences or mistakes will really pop out a lot more. Uh, but yeah, you might, it's, uh, certainly, I think you're, you're one of the things about being expert is that your expectations for what coming up next are much more detailed. So you have, so one of the, 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 um, the ways that I interpret a lot of this data is that you have a much more detailed internal model um, of what is going to be coming up next, and you're comparing it to that that much more detailed internal model. So you also had them listen to less familiar pieces. Exactly. Were, were these so much less familiar that the person couldn't predict the what was coming up next? Well, they could, they, just... could to a, to a, to a, to some degree. Um, so they, the, none of these pieces was was completely atonal or just chaotic. So they, they, they were in the style of the familiar pieces, but they were not themselves familiar. Um, and one of the things about violin performance, classical violin performance in particular, is that it is so canonical and so reified that uh, some of the, the pieces that they were playing, so for instance, the opening of the Tchaikovsky Concerto, or the Mendelssohn Concerto, or some of the, the unaccompanied box suites, everyone who plays these, and all of these violinists played them, um, knows the particular fingering that they use, the kind of bowing pattern that they're using, where they are in the bow, um, the position of the hand, um, what's going to happen next, the exact pacing that, that other people would use. Um, whereas in these other pieces, it's much, it's much more of a kind of free-for-all. So isn't it amazing that that stuff didn't show up in the images very much? I found that completely bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> and it, uh, that I found really surprising. Um, but it is true that in a lot of memory experiments that those, I mean, you do get uh, effects of, of kind of novelty and familiarity, which I would have expected, um, but, but they certainly were nothing. Uh, there was one region, uh, actually, it's interestingly, in the, in the supplemental motor area, where there was some hint of familiarity, where you saw more activation for the, for the more familiar violin pieces than the less familiar violin pieces. But that was the only, the only region, and it was really not very strong. So there wasn't an effect of familiarity in the actresses no. either. Um, that may have been, so when we did fairly extensive post-testing, of of all of the of all of the subjects and the actresses um, were tended to often think they did know those those excerpts even though they didn't <laughs> um, so they were very confident in their assertions um, but in fact didn't know them uh, so that may have there might be the the you know the, uh, thinking that you know. Uh, might have been affected, but certainly the violinists didn't know, and they didn't think that they knew these pieces. And in the so, speech, also there is uh, uh, the violin sounds the same. I mean, it can vary slightly, but it, a violin is going to kind of have the same violin sound. The phrases, the, just like in speech that you expect. Is that but what a person's mean? voice is what I was going to say. Oh, it's I like see. speech signal. 
in the person's voice is slightly less predictable with this person's voice that you're not familiar with. So there might also be still a, there may be a, a greater dissociation in familiar and unfamiliar at a, at a meaningful level in music, whereas you still have, in addition to that meaningful discrimination, you also have the unpredictability of the voice itself, the speech predicting exactly what it's going to sound like based on that person's voice. Right. Although we always, so in all of these recordings, we had exactly the same speaker, same speaker, um, and the same violinist. And neither one of the things that we did was to make sure that that they were not familiar. They would, so they were these were well known artists, but they weren't. They had never recorded. So you didn't use the actual streetcar named Desire, the Brando uh, version. No, <laughs> no, it was the Louisa Klein version. Um, <laughs> Uh, so there was actually one person who recognized the violinist, um, but uh, really, yes. <laughs> so, but this, so we tried to eliminate that because, all, especially from the familiar pieces, everyone knows the recordings of the Tchaikovsky concerto by these particular people. Now, I was just wondering what the message was in that. Then, I mean, so well, the message there is uh, is interesting that, uh, particularly in the in these regions in the uh, in in the frontal lobe in the inferior frontal gyrus and in uh, bilaterally in, in the precentral gyrus, um, where we saw uh, selective upregulation of activation for the sounds that you yourself produce. Um, I think there are a lot of people would would speculate that this is part of the the broader mirror neuron system, mm-hmm. and that there's some sort of analysis and synthesis that is that's that is actually being evidenced by activation there. And I think the fact that it's that you are not seeing any modulation at all mm-hmm. um, by familiarity actually suggests that that's not the case. In that, in that, you would certainly have a much more uh, mirror-like. You would have a much more detailed uh, reenactment of this movement if um, if that were the case. Yeah. Can I ask one last question? And this is totally not in your area, but I don't know if you Neither have. Fo- good. Yeah, Go I don't know if you have followed. Uh, like I think it was the last issue of Science or two weeks ago. This article <clears throat> about the use of fMRI in uh, legal cases. Uh, and he has been used in India recently yes. to find a woman guilty of murder, I think, or something like that. Extraordinarily, <laughs> yes. And yes. Uh, there was a meeting in Stanford about with lawyers and uh, imaging people. Uh, and I don't know if you if you have any opinion about this. Or uh, so often, uh, subjects come in and say, or how to fake it. Yes. Well, so so uh, subjects come in and say, oh well, you know, can you see what I'm thinking? And and isn't this a great way of seeing to your mind? And it, I have to say that it is if you think of it that way, is the biggest waste of money in the entire world. It's much easier and much more accurate to just ask the person. <laughs> um, and. Uh, uh, certainly, when uh, one of the things about any neuroimaging technology, but particularly MRI, is that that um, not only is it very noisy, we're looking at a tiny little change in the signal relative to the, the overall value. But yes, you can definitely fake it out. So the giant changes in activation that you see are basically due to to changes in attention or changes in what you're looking at. Um, uh, you could also move ever so slightly in the magnet and completely eliminate any kind of meaningful signal because they would be swamped by the changes due to movement. Uh, so, so I think 
the idea that you could use neuroimaging of any kind, but especially MRI, to determine the veracity or not of someone's testimony is absolutely bonkers. <laughs> that sounds reasonable. <laughs> Can't use it as a lie detector. Although I believe the CIA is trying very hard. Funding our work. Ah, yes. Well, if the CIA wishes to fund my work to uh, release... <laughs> We're on the record. Uh, Thanks, nice, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. All right. Well, thanks. This has been so much fun. And thank you, Fred. Yeah. Uh, thanks to all of you. Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thanks. Thank you. Great.